See, to me, it's around the corner from the off-white store, and to Noah, it's down the street from Goyard. <laughs> and to Rachel, and to Rachel, it's like a block away from Charvet. Yeah. That's where Castiglione is. I'm definitely hitting Charvet this trip. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I've never actually been in there. So I just want to go in and like figure out what they can do for me. Cause I don't wear or need dress shirts. So it's a little weird, but I think that they sort of claim to, or I've heard that they, they do not that they specialize in like sport shirts, but they do, they're into like also selling like unstructured wrinkly shirts as well as crispy bespoke shirts, as far as I know. But if all else fails, I'll just get some slippers. The slippers are so beautiful. I mean, just even the just looking at this big case of these slippers. And it's amazing because it's such a service-oriented place but that they have a sense of even like what the right slippers are for you, like intellectually and spiritually. <laughs> They're like, no, you are a suede man or you are a leather man. Really for you, I see suede. <laughs> I still, when I think about Paris and, and that part of Paris, like Colette was such a fixture and it's still so surprising to me that Colette just went away and Sarah, the founder never really reemerged. I mean, I know she's doing stuff, but like Colette was this like super influential, like to everyone, it was like important in fashion. They were like, they had like an amazing Gucci account. It was important in like the hype beast world in like a huge way, like everything they did would be all over the hype blogs. And, and it just seemed like Sarah in particular had this vision and this like really special, unique position in like the fashion world that was sort of like unfuckwithable. And I, I mean, I know retail is a, a brutal, ruthless game, but it's just so surprising to me, like how abrupt that was and that there hasn't really been a reemergence because it's been years now. Yeah. I used to listen to the playlists. They would put out these like playlists on their website. Um, and when I was in college, I would sit in the library and like study and listen to the playlists, which were so good. I bet. All right. Let's set this up. This is corporate lunch. Anyone um, got an episode number for me? It's 133. 133. Uh, my lucky number. And um, I mean, it, it has to, it has to be said that did we all get haircuts this week? Sam got a haircut yesterday, I think, right? I got a haircut. I got a haircut the day before. And Rachel just got her hair did. Cut? Colored? No cut, just the color. Um, so everyone's looking good, even though I'm wearing my new tennis hat. I don't know why. I just washed it and it was, I'm not playing tennis. Wow. <gasps> wow. I wish that people could have seen the way that your hair sort of was like, you know, those, you know, those like Disney movies where like, everyone's like oh like this princess who's like kind of she's fine but then she like removes a hat and she has long hair and everyone's sort of like wow she's oh, really got it look at all of her hair that was <laughs> what you just did you're you're talking about the plot of my favorite film she's all that yeah to me you have like a early aughts like bowie thing happening with the hair oh, oh that's yeah. it sort of curls like perfectly and like just like hits right at your cheekbones and it's almost like sinister in a, in a really like, cool way. <laughs> That's kind of new. I think it's, I think of it as the posh spice haircut, the sort of like, you can't really see the back, but it's like, it's a sort of a nineties, I don't know, like a Bob. Wasn't that a thing? A certain type of, then it became like the Karen haircut, like the Midwestern. There's that meme with the woman with like the frosted kind of Bob. That's like something, I don't know if it's a Karen meme or what exactly it is, but it's kind of in my that's my zone. I think I'm, 
it's just about expired. This, this due for me, it's either going to, something's going to, something different's going to happen next. Sam, you went in a pretty different direction, huh? This is like very, yeah, I think this is sort of what I had, what I got last time from Masami really? at Vacancy Project, just a little baby bang. Yeah. Yeah. It looks really different this time. I feel like it's much more. It looks more, great. It's cleaned up. It looks very it's cleaner. Good. Yeah. It um, looks really like British, almost chavy, kind of Liam Gallagher. Do you use any hair products, Sam? Would you put anything in it? I use everyday oil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I get out of the shower. Um, although it's, I think it's looking a little different because Masami shampooed my hair before the cut. And then they used a sort of different type of product. And I haven't, yeah. I haven't been able to like implement my, my regimen yet. Um, you know, I think the key with like a, with like a short, with like any sort of bang on a dude is you really just need to make it as oily as possible. So it just hangs down. I always try to get like bangs. And then every time I, I ask the person cutting my hair to do it, they tell me not to do it, that it's like too difficult. And they think I can't handle it. I don't, yeah. I'm always being told no. I sit in that chair and I say something and they're like, eh, I don't think so. That's what happened the first time I asked for bangs. I forget who I forget who I was getting my hair cut by, but they were like, have you ever had them before? And I was like, no. And they were like, okay, then you probably shouldn't. Then I'm not going to give you bangs. Like, I don't <laughs> think you're like, I don't think you're ready for this, for this life. But then honestly, how are you ever wasn't. supposed to get them? Yeah. You just, you, you know, I finally, I finally just developed a relationship with my hairstylist, Masami. And I was like, I think I'm ready. And they were like, you're ready. They trust you. I mean, it's nice when a, when a hairstylist takes your hair as seriously as you would take it, like is, is as aware as you are of like, what would happen if you had a bad haircut? Sure. Which is the worst feeling in the world. Having a bad haircut is, it's really like upsetting. I feel like it's always me. I'm just used to it. Some bad haircuts are good, you know? Like if it's like your signature thing. Well, that's that's sort of a, a move now is to like get an intentionally shitty haircut. A lot of people have that. Like there'll be some like some sort of like pieces that weren't totally cut off and like or like a weird little like rat tail moment. Sam, yeah. do you own a do you own a blow dryer? Do you ever use it? Rachel, do you blow dry your hair every day? No. I don't remember. When I got to college, my first roommate in college was this dude from Staten Island. We call him Danny Stats. And he starts. We, we get there like dropped off, you know, by the parents, like day one with like your bags and, and all your stuff. And, uh, we start kind of unpacking and I'm like breaking out my CDs and like the other dudes like breaks out his bong and Danny stats breaks out his blow dryer <laughs> and like this arsenal of hair products, like a whole bag of just like all this intense hair stuff. Cause he was really like, like at that time, like if you were from from the tri-state area, like this certain type of like blowout, like hairstyle was like mega popular. And he spent a lot of time on it. And it was really revelatory for me. I mean, like I'm from the New York area as well, but wasn't, wasn't that wasn't from that part of New York. So it was just too foreign to me. I was just amazed by his, um, his regimen and also just like this, how serious he was about it. Um, and then the Yankees lost the world series that year and he just cried. He cried for like days. So that's, you know, I learned a lot in college. Where were we? We were talking about Paris, a big city for hair. Is it? Paris? I, I, so I had that. I used to try to do this thing when I was traveling a lot. Like sometimes 
working for this magazine. Uh, we end up traveling a lot in the, you know, years ago. And uh, I used to do this thing where I'd get a haircut when I traveled. I would try, I'd get somewhere, I'd check into the hotel, I'd find the good local barber and go get a cut. And that was like, rather than like scramble to get a haircut appointment before the travel, I, I like tried to make it this thing. And uh, it's not really such a good idea. That kind of sounds like something. Remember when in the in the like mid 2000s when there were all those books that were like, how to be a modern man. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, always have lunch with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's like something that, yeah. Pack a pair of pajamas in cotton, not silk. Real men <laughs> don't wear silk. Probably yeah. we published that, but that was before all of our yeah. time. <laughs> Yeah, always carry five two dollar bills <laughs> just in case for tips yeah they'll remember you shit like that yeah well some of us are off to paris but uh because the fashion circus is is on tour um yeah. as we used to say now it's it's still sort of mostly digital but there's lots of shows there's some parties it just blazed through new york i went to one party and then observed the rest from a safe distance. Um, what did you guys do? What were you guys New York? What were y'all's as New York Fashion Week highlights? I will say I definitely experienced FOMO. I wanted to be there more than I expected to. I thought it looked just the general note. I just thought it looked like fun and lively and cool. Maybe because it was mostly New Yorkers in the show. Like it wasn't overcrowded with foreigners. And so it was like a real local it felt like a real local sort of like hometown scene, a lot of it in a cool way. Um, not that I'm not welcoming to outsiders, but since people are traveling less, it's just how it went down. But what did, what were your guys' highlights? Well, to me, the most interesting thing was that like in, in New York, generally there tends to be this like overwhelming sense of like oppressive commerciality. And that usually means that like everyone is sort of paying attention to these like very mainstream brands. And then you're sort of like kicking and screaming for more people to pay attention to the stuff that's like happening on the fringes, but actually like all the interesting stuff was like the stuff that would have been quote unquote fringe, like even like the last season before the pandemic. So like Raul Lopez, who was like the co-founder of HBA, who designs this brand called Luar, had his like big comeback show. And that was like packed with people. And there was like so much energy and like Eckhouse Lotta was packed with people. And it was like one of their strongest collections that they've ever done. And like Rachel Comey did this amazing show with like lots of like menswear and like gender fluid clothes and Miriam Nasir Zadeh was like another big highlight. And it felt like those were the shows that like when you ran into people, that's what they were talking about, yeah. which was really cool. Yeah, New York Fashion Week used to be all about like Oscar de la Renta, didn't it? Like yeah. it, it used to have this kind of like up upscale. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that's there, but I just remember a time when that was, I don't know, like DKNY and, and these kind of like old New York kind of glamour brands really ran the show. And now it's like- right cool downtown and scene. even like even the tom brown show was like i mean tom is so good at like cultivating the freak quotient but it was so freak oriented <laughs> like it was so oriented towards people who are just like obsessed with fashion and like so dedicated to the tom brown lifestyle like all these people wearing crazy stuff it was very cool i also want to call out connor mcknight had a really really killer presentation and that 
I totally agree with what you were saying, Rachel, about like the energy. And I think um, like fashion weeks past, it's, it's like, you know, New York fashion week has always felt like you're shuttling between like spring studios and like the Cadillac house or whatever, you know, it felt like very, there's like, <laughs> it has this like corporate <laughs> feeling and like, there's some big sponsorship and this big thing. And, um, but what was so cool about this edition of New York fashion week was that like Connor McKnight was like the most crowded thing I went to. It yeah. felt like, you know, and it was just like a presentation and normally the presentations that, that are sort of on schedule, but sort of like a little bit like, uh, you know, out of the way, like not at the main venue or whatever, feel a little sleepy and, you know, you kind of go and you see the thing and you're like, take a photo or whatever. And you, you, you know, you dip out and Connor McKnight was like, it was like, you know, there was a line <laughs> to get in. Right. It like felt like a real, like, you know, like a crowd outside of a real runway show. Um, and I think that that was just, you know, that just gave me a lot of, uh, gave me a lot of energy. You know, I was like excited by that. And it did have this like homegrown, like New York hang feeling, um, you know, and, and Connor is a New York designer and, um, had a big Met Gala moment with, uh, with, uh, Josh, Josh O'Connor. O'Connor and Dunhill. Dunhill. And, um, I just, I just like, it, which is like a sort of like a narrative and like, an arc for this brand that like, I don't think would have been possible two years ago. Um, like just that like people would have been like focused on all this other stuff happening in New York. And there would have been all these people in from out of town who would have had their priorities and whatever. And to be able to like forever and to be able to like take an afternoon to like go see this small designer. who's only done one show before. Um, and then he also, and then like the fact that he also got to do this big Met Gala thing was just so cool to me. I want to back up for a second, talk about Luar Zapol because, um, First of all, I think it took me about a year to realize that Luar Zapol is Raul Lopez's name backwards, and that's the name of the brand. Um, just want, I don't want anyone else who's hearing it for the first time to go through what I went through with how long it took <laughs> to realize that. But also, if that does feel like a pretty significant one, especially, I mean, the Hood by Air comeback has sort of been in starts and fits, but is at least, I mean, every time Shane sort of emerges to say something or, or do something. It generates a huge amount of energy, rightfully so, in my opinion. And then of course, Telfar who came from the same scene has just had tremendous success and remains like one of the coolest, most exciting things happening. Raul and you know, the brand Luar seems like when was the last time he did a, he had a collection, Rachel, do you know? It's been years. Yeah. I mean, he took three seasons off, but he's also, he's taken, he's kind of started, you know, done like fits and starts. It's not fits and starts, but he's kind of like put himself on pause a couple of times, but this was the big sort of like, you know, there was a, it's funny because he, he was sort of like emphasizing like a couple of pieces that would be like super sellable. Like he made these really awesome, like sweatsuits with shorts and like, you made a really good handbag and like a couple of like really good sunglasses, like things that could, could really kind of build a foundation for the brand. In addition to these like one legged pants and, you know, these like really bitchy coats with like a buckle across the chest. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Like that, that model is like, that's a very proven model, right? I mean, don't most big fashion houses sort of like make all their money on handbags and sunglasses and fragrances or whatever. I mean, that's like a, that's not a secret um, for independent designers. Historically, I feel like it doesn't necessarily work that way. And there's always been this pressure to have like a really well-rounded collection and not just have like the one thing. But I think, I mean, it's not that Telfar 
reinvented it or, or, or owns it. But I think like his model really tells you a lot about like, well, if you do have that, like if you are independent and you aren't supported by a large fashion conglomerate and you can figure out a way to make a lot of money and maintain your like independence and integrity, like that's an extremely cool and smart way to, uh, to have that type of fashion business as well. Whereas I feel like it used to be something that would be sort of like looked maybe look down upon a little bit or like a sign that there's like a cheapness to it or like a, I don't know that it's less valid to sort of do it that way, but now it just seems like the obvious smart thing to do. Yeah. I thought Luar, did you guys go to um, Peter do? Yeah. And I thought, I felt like that was going to be the big, like the big moment, the, like the, transcendent the breakthrough that and it it certainly looked very polished and um like legitimate fashion for like a debut but i don't know what what did you think of it rachel i didn't really like it um it looks very like super tough and sort of corporate to me Mm. um like it looks really kind of overly polished and like scrubbed super clean um, but I also wonder if that was like the styling, like the, he- the models all had their hair slicked back, which is a kind of, you know, that feels a little bit like outdated. It just also felt really like, uh, in conversation with the legacy of like Oscar, Carolina, like Proenza, like trying to do that sort of like uptown, downtown, like yeah. Barney's customer. And I just felt like seeing like something like Eckhaus Lada and, what Raul was doing and also Miriam Nasir Zadeh, like starting to do more tailoring. I was like, this just feels more relevant than, than that felt. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed very worked over. Like, yeah. Maybe. I also, I ran into someone like um, on the street who's a buyer, like later that night after the Peter do show. And she was like, you know, this whole thing about like craftsmanship in America is so crazy. No one in America cares about craftsmanship. They care about mass media. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really cynical thing to say, but it's also totally true. Like, you know, like part of the reason I guess why, like maybe the Raf Simmons Calvin thing, like struggled to gain a foothold is like, people don't really think about fashion in those terms in the United States. And if they, and when they do, it's like, the way that Emily or Emily Bodie or like Connor McKnight think about it, which is like bringing in these very biographical sorts of influences um, and this like intense relationship to like materiality and textiles that is very like narrativized. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's not just like, wow, this coat is like amazingly well-made. I don't think that's necessarily like interesting to people in, in America. Americans are suckers for texture and pattern, I think. Yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, that was the message of the Met Gala too, I thought. How so? Oh, which, which part? The sense, like there wasn't, the, the, the clothes that were both successful, but also were just merely present were like, there wasn't an emphasis on like, wow, this is just a really exquisitely made garment. Yeah. It was like, this person is like something to say. Or if they're Kim Kardashian, like nothing to say at all. <laughs> What were the, who were the winners and losers of the Met Gal? This is like ancient history now, but we might as well go there. Well, I think, um, I think Balenciaga was a winner. I think Elliot Page 
and the um, couture tux was really, really nice. With the sneakers. Um, with the sneakers, yeah. Um, and I mean, Kim Kardashian, right? Like, you know, I think that, I think her outfit invites many interpretations, but it's funny because um, at the last Met Gala, Kanye wore just like a black Dickies suit to be like, don't look at me, look at Kim, look at my wife who's wearing, I forget exactly what she was wearing, but like, look at her just absolutely outrageous outfit. And, and she's um, wearing Mugler. Mugler, that's right. And um, this time Kim's who didn't, I don't think Kanye wasn't there. So she showed up um, with Demna, but she sort of inverted that and was like, this time, like, don't look at me, look at me, but don't look at me. I, I don't know. I thought it was interesting at least. And, and then who went to the Justin Bieber Balenciaga party? Raise your hand if you went to the Justin Bieber Balenciaga party. Ooh, Sam and Rachel too. I did not. How, what, let's get the, what can you tell us? What can you tell us that we don't know? What, what's too spicy got, for the tabloids? I got to try on the Kalina Strada, Kim Petras horse uh, chest plate, oh, yeah. which was as, great. As did I, which. Yeah it fit really nicely. It's yeah. cool. Like it fits, it, it's like almost like wearing a backpack on your, yeah. like in front, you know, like a mm-hmm. tourist. Right. It just sort of like hugs your shoulders and like hangs down. What it's is like it? It's like a weighted it, blanket. Is it, uh, <laughs> it was it's really like, calm my anxiety. Calming. You can like yeah. stroke the horse's nose as well. If you get, if you start to feel stressed, what is it? Is it rubber or something? Silicone? Is it like, what the heck it is it made silicone. of? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it looks good with everything. It matches with everything. So it doesn't really matter. You can wear a tuxedo, you can wear a gown. The horse fits and looks great. Yeah. No if the what. horse fits. The horse fits. <laughs> um, Justin Bieber gave a very intimate performance of several of the hits, which uh-huh. Justin Bieber worked overtime on the night of the Met Gala because he also performed at the party itself. Um you and the Isabel, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And Isabel Huppert was there um, wearing a different Balenciaga outfit from the red divine outfit that she wore. Um, Hari Neff was there. David Velasco of Art Forum. Um, Michaela Cole was there looking like an insane, amazing <clears throat> alien. Yeah, she looks awesome. Kim was there. Demna was there. Yeah. Was Demna dancing to Bieber songs? I don't know. Everyone was dancing to Bieber songs. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, so. everyone was, and Bieber was like, everyone like put down your phones and like, let's just sort of be together and enjoy this time. <laughs> really? That yeah. was great when he first, yeah. Cause when he first, when he first went on stage, just every, you know, like every yeah. other person raised their phone. And then he was like, all right, let's, you know, let's put the phones down. And like, maybe like two thirds of the people like <laughs> slowly like drop their phones. And then some people were just like, fuck it. I'm getting, you know, like yeah. I got into the Balenciaga party. Like I'm, you know, I'm Everyone getting this flick off. Know. I'm getting this flick off. Yeah. Um, wow. Shout out to Justin Bieber for that. Good call. I like that. He like, it's like, let them have the phones up for one song, you know, cause that's all you need. You don't need like, I'm going to perform for 20 minutes or something. Like I'll give you like a few minutes. And then it's like, you got, you know, if you didn't get it, if you didn't get what you need for your content yet. You're not gonna. So I thought his set was great. Actually. I really enjoyed I the performance. I thought it was great too. Like, I think we've all been to fashion parties where like, there's like a, you know, like a, you know, surprise artist performance or whatever. And then like, I don't know, like 
someone will show like two chains will show up and do like two songs and like dip and you're like well all right that was kind of cool i guess but bieber really like threw down and did like a almost a full set and, and he had um, a little band with him it was very the band. sound was good yeah the sound he sounded great no auto-tune just his pure angelic canadian boy voice did he play um my favorite justin bieber song the one with diplo the diplo song where are you or something wait what is it yeah called? He played mm-hmm. it? He did, yeah. 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 Oh, that's the one song. with like the dolphin sound? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that was good. I think Diplo sampled you. Um, We're all just in the audience. We're all just in the crowd making dolphin noises going nuts. Yeah. Wearing a horse vest. Rachel, did you go to other parties that night or just the Bonciago one? I didn't. I went, to, I was planning to go to other things, but I had such a good time that I just stayed there. But I had also had a long day. That was the best one. That was the best one. I had started my day at the Costume Institute um, with all the homies who Mm. were in the show, which was kind of cool. I mean, like Eli Russell Lynette's is in the show and he was at the preview. And like Tremaine Emery's in the show. He was at the preview, like Mike and Zoe from Eckhouse Lada, Rafaela from Lou Dallas, like a ton of the designers were there. And it was, you know, usually with these sorts of things, like you wouldn't get the Pope to come and like pose next to his crazy garment or whatever. So this was pretty cool. It was kind of exciting. Yeah, I wasn't, I guess, what's the name? What was the theme of the exhibition again? So it's like, what is it called? Yeah, it's a two part thing. The first part is in America, a lexicon of fashion. Um, and then the second part is more of like a narrative history of the development of fashion over the past century. And the lexicon part was the one where all of our friends were in it, right? It's like yeah. Jerry, all the people you just named. Yeah, yeah. And Jerry Lorenzo was in it. Shane is in it. Mark Jacobs. Like, I mean, there were some people who were, there was, it's funny because a lot of people on social media were like, I hope that like they include da 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 and they don't include blah, blah, blah. Like yeah. there was some, I think, fear among the the like young Twitter commentary that this would be like a bunch of Ralph Lauren clothing. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I thought like maybe there could have been more Ralph Lauren <laughs> clothing. Yeah. Um, was, is, was Supreme featured in it in any way? No, no. And I, I was having, I was having tea with Tremaine a couple days before the show. And he was like, I really don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm really excited that it like so on and so forth. He's like, I just really hope there's not a streetwear corner. And I totally, I was like, yeah, I really hope there isn't either. But then going through the show, I was like, wow, they've just totally missed like, like Willy wear is like not in here. And like Supreme is not in here. And like, would have been cool to have like Barbara Kruger next to Supreme. And that just feels like kind of a really yeah, Stussy for sure. I was, when I started seeing photos of it, I was surprised to see how many of the like current young designers were featured. And it just made me really curious because I did expect it to be like a lot of Ralph, but also like, God, I don't even really know what else, but just, I was just imagining like the stuff that has been selling best that sold best at Barney's over the last 30 years. You know what I mean? Um, not, not like the Tremaine's and stuff, which I, I think is awesome, but it really like sort of rewired my, um, it was just surprising, I guess. I don't know. Did people take it that way? Like, or did it, and then I had this other like worry 
that I was like, is this all sort of disingenuous? Like, was this an attempt to seem to make the whole thing feel hip by just like having a random smattering of like current fashion, cool guys in, in a way that might be awkward for them. I mean, it sounds like it wasn't, it sounds like everyone was really happy about it and it kind of hangs together well, but like that, that fear that Tremaine expressed, like there being like sort of a streetwear ghetto. I mean, like did, I guess that, that was another thing I thought is like, how is this, how is it coming off? You know? I mean, I think there was definitely like in the lead up to the show, like all of the interviews that Andrew Bolton gave, he did mention like, oh, we've realized that a lot of our past exhibitions like didn't include, you know, designers of color and, you know, didn't include a lot of female designers. And um, it was just really like emphasized on this like white European view of fashion. Um, and I do think in a certain way, like cynically or not, this exhibition was intended so that like people could never say like, oh, they're ignoring like Shane or they're ignoring Telfar. Um, but because it was, so, because so much of it is so recent um, and hopefully like this will be different in the second part of the exhibition. But like, I don't know, to me, I was just like, Willie Smith is like, one of the most essential American designers like who's ever lived like the way that he combined like the art world with the fashion world was like totally unprecedented and it's like Supreme copied him like Armani copied him Jonathan Anderson like is obviously like working kind of in the same vein as him Virgil Abloh of course like so as a result of like trying to be super inclusive I think there was maybe a like a bit of a blind spot of like, okay, but like, what are these other kinds of significant brands that like need to be included in this yeah. kind of American quilt of fashion? Wait, is the, is the second part of it open yet? I haven't seen anything about that. That opens in May. Got it. Okay. Is there going to be another Met Gala in May? <laughs> yeah. Like a bigger also, Met Gala. Is it also going to be? American? So Sam, you might get, you might get to go to that. I might one. actually get invited this time. Yeah, that'd be great. How can the Met Gala be bigger? More people? Yeah, this one was slightly, yeah. slightly smaller than usual, I think. Oh, I don't think I realized that. And then, and it was also like younger, hipper. And then the next part of the exhibition will be in both the Costume Institute, which is like a, a sort of space in the basement of the Met, as well as in the American wing. But is the lexicon, sorry, we're really in the weeds here, but is the lexicon part of the show coming down when that goes up? I'm not sure, actually. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get Andrew Bolton on the phone and get Andrew on the pod on the, on the pod. And we'll start with Tom and Hector start to sort some of this out. Yeah. The whole family. Wait, to go back to the cool, uh, under discussed history of New York. No, I feel like you chased your Iraq story which was in the fall GQ style issue. That was something that you were working on for like two years, I think, right? <laughs> like, I feel like that came up pre-pandemic. I remember Will coming over to my desk and being like, no one I were just saying that we need to do this story about Iraq. Yeah, I mean, I could have gotten like a master's degree in some like obscure science, I think, the amount of time it took <laughs> me to do to get this story published, which is honestly... 
an awesome way to work and is, is just not the mode for magazines. I mean, I did many things fortunately while I, in the meantime, but it probably first came up two years ago. There was some months of like initial outreach and conversations to kind of test the waters, um, you know, and, and start to piece together what I think the story of Iraq is, which I, you know, determined was the story of Kunle Martins, who's the founder. Um, and him and him and Dash Snow really were Iraq. I mean, there are many other Iraq members, but um, Kunle's story is the story that hadn't really been told yet and is, to me, the more compelling story and the more essential story to New York and to Iraq and to a lot of other things. Uh, so, God, I don't know. I mean, I, I just... you. A project like this, it had fortunately Will sort of assigned it to me without a deadline for, for better or for worse. And um, and then I just chased it. I probably did 30 or 40 interviews with different folks who were part of the downtown scene, Iraq members and non-Iraq members, and then just spent a lot of time talking with Kunle and hanging out with him over the course of a year and a half or so. And in that time, like when I first met with him, he was living in the projects in the Bronx, um, his first apartment, you know, before that he was homeless. Um, he was just starting to make art. Uh, he was just starting to have some art shows and it was a very intense kind of time for him. And then over the, you know, the last time I met with him, he had like moved into, moved out of the projects into his first sort of proper apartment and was kind of thriving and had this amazing show open at, um, with 56 Henry at Portolami. Right. And, um, was, getting all these amazing positive reviews of that and things were just really taking off for him. So kind of like, I, this isn't actually in the story so much. This is like a, a little bit of like the behind the scene thing, but like I was just sort of trailing him while he was experiencing this like pretty dramatic personal and professional transformation. Um, and I think probably as a result, he was feeling pretty like introspective and was it just really generous and open He's always, I mean, he's an amazing storyteller and he's never been shy about that. Like you can just search his name on YouTube and watch these incredible interviews of him just like running is just saying the most amazing, hilarious, wild stuff over the years. Um, that's what he's famous for. So it kind of finally all came together. We got it in the fall issue of GQ style with Jonah on the cover. Um, pretty, pretty beefy story. I don't know. It might've ran at like 7,000 words. Um, and everyone loved it because I did an amazing job. And someone, uh, someone came up to me on the street to say to tell me how much they love Noah's Iraq story. <laughs> Some kid visiting New York from San Francisco. And uh, anyway, Noah, how how aware were you of Iraq and Kunle and Dash and Ryan and those guys? At, you know, at, when, like at the time of their sort of come up in the New York art scene and graph scene and skate scene. Like you were living in New York at the time, I think. Were, were you like seeing these guys around and hearing stuff about them? You know, were, did, were you like aware of their reputations and their work and, and their scene and what they were doing, um, you know, at the time? Or was a lot of this stuff like a new sort of history that you were exploring? No, I was, I was around. I mean, I was like a lurker at the time. I used to go to A-Life all the time um, on the weekends and, you know, Kunle was working there and um, I would just kind of like, it was just like when you were young, you would just go downtown and just like cruise around and like hit the 
hit the shops and like maybe once in a while buy something. I mean, I th- I'm sure it's the same thing kids do now, but there was just like a really different scene and A-Life was really a fixture and seemed extremely cool and was very intimidating. And um, so kind of through A-Life and then um, I was going to Supreme a lot of the time as well. Yeah, I, I definitely knew what was up. People knew who Dash who Dash was. Um, you know, he was still alive at the time and was very much active as an artist and a... Uh, graffiti writer people knew who Kunle was he was pretty scary he would beat people up a lot he was the first dude I think this probably isn't like quite accurate but he was the first dude to like be really into fixed gear bikes that was like or among the first like there was a lot of crossover at the time it seems really lame now but at the time to have like a fixie and like work at a life and hang out with skaters and graffiti writers was like peak um cool so but it it was like a little bit of a thing of my like when it will came to me and he was like hey we should do a big iraq story my initial thing was like nah i don't want to do that it was like i don't know it felt too like personal in a way not that it's personal to me necessarily but i was like i don't know if i'm ready to like revisit that era of my like life and taste and um but Thankfully, he convinced me. I mean, I learned a lot. There's been a, you know, there was just a Dash Snow documentary that came out by Cheryl Dunn around the same time. Um, but, you know, there'd been a lot of coverage of Dash. And I mean, one of the well, things there, I was, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just also going to say, Noah, like, I was curious, like, when you started this piece, but also as you were writing it and it became more and more focused on Kunle, like, the most famous thing about this group of dudes is this New York magazine story right which is like has these famous photographs of these like kind of like scrawny but so attractive white guys who are like all lying in bed together and like doing a bunch of drugs and like falling off the roof and it and also like you know in the story it's made very apparent that like dash snow comes from this incredibly wealthy family and that's like you know, like Kunle like wasn't in that story. And that's something that you talk about in the piece and that a number of the people you spoke to like bring this up. Yeah. Um, and it feels like, I think a lot of people even who have like kind of a more than passing interest in like Dash and like Ryan McGinley like often don't know that, oh, in fact, like this wasn't just these like kind of upper class and like middle-class white guys. It was like a much you know, like the most interesting person in all of this is this homeless black, you know, artist. Yeah. Gay graffiti writer. Yeah. You know? um, I think, yeah. I mean, I had this, like, I, I was like kind of in the beginning started with this idea that like Kunle should have been on that New York mag cover, which that New York mag cover was like very memorable to, memorable to me. And I thought it was a very cool story. It's Dash, Dan Colon and Ryan McGinley in bed together. Um, as they often were with the headline, I think it's with the cover line, Warhol's Children. And uh, the truth is, I don't know. I mean, this is like a stretch. It's weird to say, but like, it's sort of a travesty that Kunle wasn't in that photo. And in the story, he's treated like this sort of thug. He's mentioned briefly as just a a shoplifter um, and kind of a thug that they hang out with. But like, that's not really, I mean, these guys were infatuated with Kunle. I mean, he was majorly influential everyone the whole scene everyone was really they were really shaping their lives their work as artists around Kunle and his influence now he was a he was a wild card and he was sort of unpredictable and had his own issues which made him difficult for a lot of people to deal with he was sort of violent and um 
and uh, intense and intimidating. But uh, nevertheless, you know, anyway, this story just sort of like missed it. And I just thought, I just thought it's just classic, like um, big media racism. And like, I, there's, I, there's no other explanation. Like he was just overlooked because he didn't fit the picture of what they wanted. Not to, I mean, Ryan was openly gay as well. Um, but I think Kunle just was too hard to figure out. He was too hard to fit neatly into that story. So, I, you know, I don't want to make it seem like the whole thing revolves around this fucking New York Magazine story. Dash, it was really a profile of Dash. It ruined Dash. He was devastated by the story and it really fucked him up. Um, it's very uncomfortable with it. And um, it is what it is. But it was kind of a jumping point and like a realization for me, like about it. It just put Kunle into perspective for me, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, you start asking some people about that and they'll tell you what they think. Should we share our, each share our fall shopping list and then call it a day? Yes. Okay, Sam, do you have your fall shopping list? I'm going to Paris and I'm going to go to, I'm because I was, I'm trying to remember like what I sort of left on the table. I was in Paris over the summer and I did some pretty heavy shopping. I finally bought the Celine leather jacket of my dreams, which was kind of like the number one thing on my fall shopping list. I didn't realize I was going to be going back so soon. I, so I just did it. I did not go to Charvet when I was there. Um, I walked by, I did some window shopping, but I think I'm going to finally buy the slippers. I need some new house shoes. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to see how they sort of read me as, you know, my calf leather guy and my suede leather guy. Um, I don't know. I think suede probably for the house shoe. You know what story I really liked last time I was there was the broken arm. Um, it was sort of the it was sort of the tail end of sale season, so it was a little it was a little barren. But that store is still just so good, and um, it has one of the best shoe like shoe and sneaker selections I've seen in in a boutique in a long time. Um, so I'm excited to go back to the broken arm and see what's going on. Yeah, there's um, a lot of like special Solomons there. Oh yeah, they have the most the most special Solomons. They were the originators, kind of the originators yeah. of that whole wave. I just saw that they're they're now carrying this designer Arnar Mar Johnson. It's probably not how you say it. I've never had do you have Noah you Johnson? Ever heard of, Yeah. This is my cousin's <laughs> brand, Arnar Mar Arnar Mar Johnson. But it's like techie. It looks like that brand GR10K kind of. It's like yeah. uh it's like very tech and kind of tactical and like fleecy, like acronym, but then kind of hippie-ish and things are naturally died. Anyway, shout out R&R Mar Johnson at the Broken Arm because that's the spot I want to hit up. Rachel, what's on your list? Um, I have two things on my list. One is that I would like a pair of Bodhi pants. Mm, I'm nice. ready to bring some Bodhi pants into my life. Um, and the second is that I found this amazing 90s vintage Versace coat on the real real, which I really need. I've got to have this coat. And the price is very nice. What are you waiting for? Have you have you smashed the uh, order button yet? Or you're just kind of- I haven't smashed the order button yet, but I, I know I, I need to do it now because now I've announced it and people are going to go on. I'm now not going to, I'm not going to describe it. Buy it before this episode airs. Do you, do you ever shop? Do you have like, do you ever like re reward yourself with shopping? Like say you like, 
even if it's arbitrary, but like you finish some big feature and you're like, I'm going to buy the coat now. Do you operate that way or do you just do Once things in a on while? Him? Yeah. Once in a while. So do you like, do that? Um, sometimes I make up things in my head just to like justify something. But yeah, I think there are times when I'm like, oh, I need like a reason to do this. Or like if something is expensive or seems fancy or special, I'm like, I can't do this just because I have to like create some reason to do it. Um, which brings me to my fall shopping list, which includes something that feels really radical to me. And I don't know if it'll happen, but I want to get a watch. Um, I've said for years, I'd never wear a watch and I'm finally there. And you've been reading GQ and it really, yeah, I hung out with fucking Sam Hine too much. No, but I, (laughs) I want to get an old unfancy Cartier tank. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a, what is it called? A contradiction. I mean, it's a fancy watch, but I want like a crappy beat up one, not just because they're cheap, but I just want like a knock around tank, you know, gold with like a black croc watch, croc strap. Um, So in my mind, I'm like, I recently had a, Jane and I had a big anniversary recently. So I was like, I'm going to get myself a watch for, but it's like, that's not a good reason to get myself a watch, but uh, it will be if I can find one. And apparently it's like the hottest watch in the market right now. And I've been asking around and people are telling me that they're kind of scarce at the moment. So we'll see, but that's on the list. Um, and I am going to Paris later today, um, actually. So I'm going to do some digging, not going to buy a new one. And then, um, in Paris, there's a little shop called shade Shay. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'll say it right, but shave it link. Shea Vidalink is um, started by this guy, Philip Philippe Vidalink, who was, he and um, Gareth Casey founded Casey Casey together. It used to be called something else. I can't remember. Anyway, this is like a really, really tiny little Parisian kind of tailor, shirt maker, clothes maker guy who makes mostly women's wear, but he makes like a handful of men's pieces, mostly like blazers and jackets. So I'm going to try to see if he has like a little, I'm thinking like a little Tweety blazer in my size. Yeah. Um, nice. His stuff is really sick. Just like totally handmade, soft. It's probably like real scratch, just real kind of crunchy feeling. Um, and then, uh, oh, shoes. I can't figure out the shoe move. What I really like are those, those three eye the three eye Timberland shoes mm-hmm. with like the mock toe and the like lug mm-hmm. sole. I love those. Yeah. Like a lot of people yeah. make them like Ame Leon door, I think does a really good one. And engineer garments has done them in the past. Um, but I don't have a ton of faith in like a hundred dollar Timberland as like the thing that's going to feel good. I haven't really tried those yet, but Paraboot makes a similar one. That's like mm-hmm. the fancy version. Um, so I'll swing by the pair boot store and see if I like those or if they seem worth it over the Tim's, which like, don't get me wrong. I like and respect Tim's. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I just worry about inexpensive kind of mass market shoes. I don't like buying shoes that blow out quickly. I also don't like buying shoes that lots and lots of other people wear. So, but I don't know if it's going to mean it's worth like the four, four times the price or whatever the heck it's going to be. Damn, that's a gnarly shopping list. I better like get on it. Well, yeah. also like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm 
if I've got this, the bread for this, maybe it's something that I'll try to achieve. Get a big holiday bonus. The, oh, the corporate lunch bonuses are coming through soon. The massive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm almost finished with the calculations. Okay, I'm still good. calculating the bonuses, adding the zeros. Yeah. Um, but those are going to be hitting, hitting very soon. Don't worry. Yeah. Great. Great. We'll look forward. And then to we'll, that. All, we'll all go to the Cartier store together. Yeah. Um, that's right. Well, part uh, of the bonus, we get the watch, like in addition to the, the lump sum. With the corporate lunch. It's a lunch. special Cartier corporate lunch uh, tank. Well, that concludes um, another fantastic and very special episode of, of corporate lunch. Um, we'll see you next time. Guys, do we have anything? You guys have anything to plug? Uh, <laughs> GQ.com. You know, this is the GQ podcast about clothes. So this is. Uh, you already know. You already that's, know. You already know what it is. We'll see you guys next time for 134. Okay. Bye. Later. Bye.